Last week we talked about uh, knowing God's will and how to know his will and his design. And we talked about the first thing about knowing God's will is uh, recognizing that his word will tell us where we are, meaning if we're doing a certain thing, where we're at, and it'll tell us if we keep doing what we keep doing, it'll show us where we'll end up in life. And so I want to continue on about knowing God's will for our life. And uh, His will is not just what He wants you to do. And that's important to know. His will is what He wants you to do, but He has willed things for you. He has a design and a plan about life for you and how He would like things to be for you. He would like you to be healed. He would like you to have success in life. He would like you to do His will, and uh, more than just, you know, going out and preaching somewhere, but that is part of His will for you to be a witness and share, but there are things He wants you to know, but here's the thing, have you ever read something in the Bible and thought, how can that become real to me? And really, that's what I want to talk about today, so if you're there in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, we're going to read several verses here. But I guess probably fundamental to the Christian faith is this fact. You must believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Period. And that if God is God, then He's big enough to keep His little book. And keep it right. In other words, you know, it's not like, well, we can only trust half of it. Which half? And who determines that? God is big enough to keep the book. Amen? And, you know, I've heard people say, well, it's been translated so many times over the years, you know, it's just gone away or whatever. Those are actually just real errant statements. It has been translated, but you can go back and find real old documents and stuff, and they found, you know, complete parts of some of the Bible, you know, from the Old Testament before the New Testament was even written, and they're the same, you know. And so, but can the Bible be trusted? Absolutely. And so what the Bible really is, it's a book that has God's thoughts, things he has said. And so if we will trust the Bible, because you, if you want to be saved, you have to trust the Bible. Amen? You have to. You have to trust the Bible. You have to trust what Jesus said or what the Bible said, that Jesus died and rose again. And if you'll trust the Bible and act on the Bible, then the reality of it will come to pass in your life. In other words, you will recognize what it is to be what the Bible said, born again. You'll recognize what it is to have God deal with you. As a matter of fact, one of the to me, one of the fascinating scriptures in the Bible said, every single person who has given their life to the Lord, God deals with them. Well, to me, and he corrects them, to me, that is a profound statement because that is the endorsement of God for what he will do in your life when you've acted on the word and received him as your Savior and Lord. You don't have to believe for it. You don't have to strain for it. When you get saved, the Bible said every child of God becomes dealt with. He'll deal with you. He'll encourage you in your walk. 
He'll deal with you in the path you're to take. He'll do all kinds of things, and he'll deal with us on the inside. That is something that is not always seen. You out there? But have you ever seen people that go crazy, and you go, man, they're listening to voices in their head, and they just their whole life becomes altered and tweaked? And sometimes, you know, like the madman of Gadara in the Bible, nobody can chain them. They're just out of control. And you see them sometimes off the side of the road or they're put in prison. It's because something internally was working in them that's not good. Yeah, out there? Something's driving them. Something's directing them. They don't, they don't want to be held. They don't want to be bound. You know, they don't want to be put in a place. They want to move and maneuver on their own. They want to have their own freedoms. It's interesting when the madman of Gadara, the demon-possessed man in the Bible, got the devil cast out. It said he put his clothes back on. He was seated and in his right mind. Well, why are you telling that when you're talking about knowing God's will? Because there are things that drive people that we don't see. But as a Christian, there are things that should drive us that others will not see. They won't, and they won't understand all the time. So you don't have to tell people, well, you know, well, why aren't you going to do that? Well, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to do that. And the Bible says in Peter that the world will think you're strange if after you're saved and you don't run to the same excesses you used to. Well, why would you not do what you once did? Well, it's obviously not just because of something seen, but it's something unseen. It's God dealing with you. It's God making a change in your heart. It's God making an internal, internal change that then will show up on the outside like a crazy person. Well, that thing is, those people can get free but it's from a working that's unseen also. It's God. But here's the thing. We need to understand God deals with us, and he doesn't always deal with us on a billboard. And I think you have to be careful when you start talking about how God deals with people and stuff because what happens is somebody's praying for a car, and they're like, oh, I like a VW. Lord, give me a sign. And you drive by and said, VW for sale. Oh, there's a billboard right there. That's a sign. Then you drive a little further, and there's a VW parked on the side of the road for sale. Oh, Lord. You cannot live life just by external things. You with me? If you want me to buy Girl Scout cookies when, when the time comes, then I, what I want you to do, Lord, is send a Girl Scout to my house. Or get one to the grocery store. You don't even have to pray about that. They're coming. <laughs> and, and, but some people are like that. And they think, well, Lord, if you want me to be with that guy or you want me to be with that girl, you just have them come talk to me. Well, if you're standing in the doorway and it's the only way out of the room, they're probably going to come by you. And there might be a chance they might even say something. But what it is, is people get driven and governed by outward things. Every Christian, if you're going to know the will of God, you're going to know it beyond your feelings. You out there? 
You're going to know it beyond your feelings. You're going to know it through his written word first and him dealing with you inside. How many Christians have known something, but because other things were out there pushing and pulling, you went, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what this is calling me to do. And, but we don't have to do that. And the reason why I say what I say is because we need to understand that God's dealings are not always out there somewhere. They're inside. They start in his word. It's a primary way to know his will. Like we said last week, he said, my word is a lamp unto my feet, shows me where I'm at. In other words, if the Bible said forgive, and I don't forgive, then the Bible said a root of bitterness will come, and then it says many people will be defiled by it. So it tells me where I'm standing, and then it tells me where I'll be. I'll end up defiling people, and I'll be defiled. You know, isn't it true? And so the Word will show us where we're at, right? Bible and Proverbs, the, the book of wisdom, tells you don't go by the seductress's house. It's where you don't stand because then they'll try to draw you in. And so the Bible will tell us things. But the Bible also says if you want to be wise, stand or stay and be around the wise, and then the result will be you will be wise. The Bible is God's book to us for instruction. We need to believe it in our heart. And here in Hebrews, we're going to kind of change a little bit from how we were talking about God's will last week. And realize this, when God deals with you, he's going to deal with you in your spirit, inside. He is going to, you know, do something in you. And you can be guaranteed if you're a child of God, he has endeavored to deal with you in your life. He has. That's good news. Because whatever God deals with you about, He said He does it for your benefit. He does it according to His will and His purpose. And so notice this in Hebrews, and we're going to read a few verses right here. Hebrews 6, 13, concerning God, His Word, and following His Word. Because really... You cannot know God properly apart from knowing His Word. You cannot know God's will appropriately apart from His Word. That's why there's so many people that say, well, you know, you can't know God's will. But yes, you can. I said, yes, you can. You can know God's will. You can know what God wants and what His plan is. Notice this in the 13th verse. For when God had made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Saying, surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. So God told Abraham I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. These things are going to happen. But it's interesting how it's written. And just a side thought, the Bible teaches that those who have received Christ Jesus actually have Abraham's blessing in their life right now. Every believer 
You don't have to pray about it. Once you've given your life to the Lord, Abraham's blessing is yours. And so here he said, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. But verse 13 says, When God had made the promise to Abraham, and that was his promise. And really that promise is to you, to multiply you and bless your life. But he said, when he made the promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. To me, that's interesting. And we're going to read on before we go back to that verse 13 again. Notice 15. And so after he had patiently endured, meaning Abraham, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. In other words, what's he saying by men swear by the greater, and once they swear by it, it ends the dispute? In other words, we're not going to argue Here's what we do today, or you'll hear people say this. Yeah, I'll do that for you. You, you sure? Really? And they say, I swear. Come on, are you really going to do it? And then they do this. They go, I swear to God. Now, I'm not saying we should do that. The Bible tells us, let your word be yes and your no, no. We don't have to. But he said, men do that. That's something that's been around for years. Are you really going to do it? I swear. Really? I swear to God. I'm saying it before God. And, and here's what's interesting. When they do that, it's the end of the argument, right? You quit disputing. You go, okay, all right, I believe that. In other words, you're swearing by somebody bigger than yourself who you believe in or whatever. And it just kind of ends the argument, right? It stops the dispute. God said he couldn't do that. When he promised us stuff, he couldn't do that. He couldn't say, I swear to, oh, that's me. I swear to myself. He just said, listen, it's a fact. You have to trust God in his character and know that he is the biggest. So when he swore, he didn't go, well, I swear to so-and-so. I swear on my grandfather's grave. Because there is... You know, whoever it is, listen, I swear on this. And you hear this kind of stuff because they try to endorse what they're saying and try and enforce what they say. The Bible said God couldn't do that. Nobody greater than him. There is no other beside him. So when he swore, he swore by himself. Well, men do it to end arguing. I swear on my car, I'll give you my car if I don't do it. Uh, you know, haven't we ever done that? You know, I went to go test ride a bike and, uh, and was getting a bike a little while back and, and I went to this bike shop and they said, well, we need your driver's license and stuff. I said, I don't have it, it's out of my car. And I said, but I gave the girl my car keys. My keys are more valuable than this bike by a long shot. If I leave with the bike, you got the car. Oh, no problem. Because I said, it's that one right outside the door. And they said, oh, okay, no, no problem. 
what was I doing? I was swearing by something greater in value to them to enforce the deal that was being made. What was the deal being made? I'm just going to borrow the bike, I'm going to ride it around, and I'm going to be back. I'm giving you my word. If my word is broken, this is what enforces it. God said men do that to, uh, to end disputes. You know, she quit arguing about getting my driver's license. It was an end of the dispute. It was an end of the argument. We need to recognize when we're talking about God and God's word, it has to be there. In other words, we don't need any proof beyond it. We don't need a sign. We don't need a wonder. We just need to understand when God gave his word and spoke his word and men penned it and put it down and all these different things there, that it can't be any greater. God's word is as big as it gets. If I quote the word of God to you, I don't have to back it up and say, I swear, he'll, I swear to God he'll do this. He said it. He backs up his own word. And so if we're going to know God's will, that's the first step. You've got to trust that his word is exactly what he said it is. Here's the thing. What if I don't like part of it? You ever not liked part of it? Well, sure, I could forgive everybody but that one person. <clears throat> then you have to remember when God swore by his word and he could swear by no greater. In other words, he's basically, he's esteeming his word above everything. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, we know that Jesus' name was what they were told to stop preaching and stop doing works through in the Bible and there's no other name that can be given whereby men must be saved we know that in Acts the fourth chapter and on and on about the power of his name and the significance of his name but if you read the Bible it said he's exalted his word above his name because it's through the truth of his word we know the force of his name by which people can be saved, healed, delivered, whatever it is somebody needs. To get an answer to prayer, you're to use his name. And so when he couldn't swear by any greater, he said it himself, he swore by himself. And here's what's interesting is, verse 16 we'll read again, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. You know what should be an end of the dispute in your life? Whatever God said in His Word, promise, statement, should be an end of all arguments. Well, He said I'm healed, but I sure don't feel like it. Quit arguing. He said He loves me, but you know, I've just stopped it. An end of all disputes. As a matter of fact, the Bible, when it says receive with meekness the engrafted word, it means, meekness literally means one who doesn't fight and argue against. Think about it. Really, it means you just take it without dispute. And so, verse 17, Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of His of the heirs of promise, 
the immutability or literally the unchangeableness of his counsel, what he said, he does not change. What he said does not change. So what is he saying here? Thus, or because of this, God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his counsel or of what he said confirmed it by an oath. He confirmed it by what he said because he couldn't swear by any other. You're not going to get anything greater than what God has said. Nothing. You know, I was looking the other day at a video documentary about communist Russia and how, you know, and, and communist China and how life has changed there and uh, how things, they, you know, got better at certain times and how it was, you know, certain things. And I've heard people say, well, they live there. It's not that bad. You know, life has gotten better. Here's the big thing about communism even in China where people are beginning to get rich and stuff like that, they, they don't want them to know God, so they take the word away. They let them live, maybe even prosper some, but they take the word away. Why would they do that? First of all, the Chinese government feels threatened by the word because they even said years back that it teaches men to, to submit to God and not to the government. But that's not altogether true, as long as it doesn't go against the word. But what's the danger in all that is this, that when we have people who uh, exit from the word of God or whole groups of people who don't have the word of God, and this is huge, that don't have the word of God, they have nothing to act on. They have nothing to trust. They can't be saved. If they don't have the word, they can't get answers to prayer. The word of God is foundational to the believer's life. And to any man's life. And so it has to be esteemed. And so I think some people don't realize the damage that comes when the word is stopped from getting into people. Well, just take it out of the schools. What are we saying? We're saying, we don't want God to talk to our people. We don't want Him to talk to our kids. Don't bring that up at work. Don't bring that up to this person. Don't act on it. It's an interesting concept, but the Word of God has to have its right place in our life and in really in the world's life. And it says, Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs... What is an heir? It's the ones who get to partake. The Bible said we're heirs with Christ Jesus. So he wanted to make these things sure to us. And so it says he confirmed it by an oath. God didn't say I'm going to write something in heaven and I'm going to make jets fly over that say, yeah, the word of God is true. He said, I'm just going to say it and that's just going to be it. And that's as high as you need because there is no higher way than just what I said. As a matter of fact, Jesus is called the living word. He, we know we have the written word. Jesus came to show us and live it out. 
He was the word that became flesh. But notice this. It says, verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What hope is he talking about? He's talking about the hope and the things that have been spoken by God. And it's interesting that he said he gave us two immutable things. In other words, he swore it to Abraham and he swore it again. He said it and then he said it again. Think about that. If you can find something in the Bible that's not just written one time, but it's written a few times, you know God's saying something. If he said he wants the whole world saved, and the Bible said that he died for all, that all men might be saved, and that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. He, when he's repeating himself, that's huge with God. If he said he took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, and if it says by his stripes you are healed, God is not going to swear by anything else. So when he's giving oaths or promises and giving more than one, he's really saying something. Well, God, I see you said this here, but if you could really just do something to help me, maybe, maybe have a blimp fly over. Maybe if, if somebody would call me and just tell me something, you know, like this weird phrase, and I'll knew you, know you're talking to me. No, what needs to be is whatever he said, that's it. And so notice here, it says this hope. What hope? Well, he said we laid... He, to lay hold of this hope that's set before us. What hope is he talking about? In one way, he's basically saying anything he has promised gives you an expectation. And he said, we fled from re for refuge so that we might lay hold of the hope. This hope we have, verse 19, is an anchor for your soul or for your mind, both sure and steadfast and which enters in the presence behind the veil, talking about Jesus, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He basically starts talking about how Jesus is in heaven enforcing this new covenant. Everything that he said and he promised is sure and steadfast. What we need to understand is if it's sure and steadfast, what can we really do in life with what he said? Here's an interesting verse in 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is real interesting. We have fled for refuge. Where have we gone? Some people think out of your mind. No. Where have we fled for refuge? Where does anybody who wants refuge with God need to go? Where do they need to go? Somebody said church. Well, that could be okay. Where do you need to go? You need to go to his word. That's where our refuge is. Right there, whatever he said is our refuge. 
And so here it says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible is an inspired book. It's sure and steadfast. I want you to do this. Turn to Matthew 14. Because we who have fled for refuge... to lay hold on the hope that's set before us. We fled from everything that was in the world and we've surrendered our lives to the Lord. And so we have fled for refuge to lay hold on this hope, this hope that's set before us that we know by what He has stated is fact. If we fled for refuge in His Word, then His Word has to stand up or we're in big trouble. Is His Word going to collapse? The Bible said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But the issue is not does the Word collapse. If His Word is a great refuge to run into, then we should know the validity of His Word and what to do to make it work for us. You with me? Notice this in, in Matthew 14, a very familiar verse of Scripture. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. Have you ever, and you maybe have seen this bumper sticker. If you think you're perfect, try walking on water. You ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say that? You don't have to be perfect to walk on water. It's not implied you have to be perfect to walk on water. That's just what somebody said. You don't. Matter of fact, you could be very imperfect and walk on water. You have all kinds of faults and everything and walk on water. Peter started walking on water and he had all kinds of issues in his life. Or that things that seemed to pop up. And he did it. But we're talking about fleeing for refuge to his word to his promises i mean in other words that's all you've got under your feet and that's all you've got is a roof over you is his word it's all you've got is for a shield around you when the fiery darts come is his word notice this verse 22 of the 14th chapter of matthew immediately jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. And it says, And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening had come, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. So it's late at night. They look out over the sea. And I don't know, I would assume there was some kind of moon. 
One thing I've learned about living here in Arizona compared to Southern California where there's street lights everywhere, city lights glowing everywhere. Where I live, there aren't street lights. And, and all the, technically, the porch lights and house lights are supposed to be covered. One thing I have found on a full moon, you can go walk out in the desert and you don't need a flashlight. And the other day I was out riding my bike. There was no moonlight, and I kind of crashed a little bit. But I had lights, and I got a big wad of cactus. Why, yeah. And, uh, but you don't need lights. You should have just seen. I actually was laughing and thinking, I need to probably have somebody help me get this out. And I thought, Mike's doing the men's ministry now. I can't ask Pastor Linda. I thought, I'll tell him, you pull this stuff out. And great will be your reward. You know, who do I call? I'm, I'm not going to go to a doctor and pull. And then I remembered when I was little, when I stepped on a cactus and I had socks on, I pulled the sock off and it came out. So I started pulling my shirt and I was like, hey, it's coming out. But here's the thing. Uh, if there was light... I wouldn't even need lights. When there's a full moon out there, you can walk. I know people in the church who hike who have said they go out at night on full moons and do hikes. You don't need, you don't need flashlights here when it's real dark. And so I only assume that, you know, when they saw Jesus, they saw this him coming off the horizon on the water, and they're freaking out. They're thinking a ghost. I've heard this said that the tradition is that if you saw a ghost and you were out in a ship, you were going to die. So I don't know if that's what they thought. <laughs> we're out here. But Jesus had already told them, go to the other side. The wind was contrary. So in the fourth watch of the night, I mean, it's dark, and he's walking on the water, verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Notice verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke. What do you need when you're in trouble? You need a word. What kind of word do you need? A special one? No, you just need a written word out of the Bible. And notice this. It said he spoke and he said, be of good cheer. They're all upset. And he said, be of good cheer. If God said, be glad, then you need to be glad. He sees something more than you see. So if he says, be of good cheer, then you can cheer up right in the middle of your... Well, you know, I just not everything's changed. If he said cheer up, he can't swear by anybody greater. He knows something beyond you. Cheer up. If he said, don't worry... He can't swear by anybody else. He said, you give me your care and don't you worry. You do it. If he tells you to do something, do it. If he says something, it's a fact. And notice he said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now remember the Bible said Jesus never said anything or did anything unless he saw his father or heard from his father. So he's talking God's words. And Peter answered him, verse 28, and this is where I wanted to get to. And he said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
say something. Say something. Just say something. Just say something. You think the Bible is important to the believer? What we should say to the Lord when we go to read is, you say something. Whatever is said here that's said to me or to the church or to the believers, I'm going to take that. And so he said to him, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Those who have fled for refuge to lay hold on this life, it is to be an anchor to your soul. Jesus and his word is to be an anchor to your thinking and what you think on. What is an anchor for? To slow you down when you're driving your boat? No, it's not functioning properly then. Is it for a decoration to hang off the front of the boat? And you're like, that's kind of cool. I got a, my anchor's in the boat. There's hangs off the front of the boat. What's the word of God for? For a decoration? Just to sit inside the boat? No, it's to be applied to keep you from drifting and to keep you where you need to be. This word he got was to keep him up on top of the water and not drowning and not sinking. This word was to help him to be an example to us on how to do it. But it became a different example. And it says, and Peter you know, answered and said, all right. And so he stepped down and off he went. So those who flee for refuge, one of the greatest things we can recognize as the refuge for all believers is what has God said? What has he said in his word? And don't let anybody else talk you out of it. Notice this. But when... Now he has... He's laid hold on this word for refuge, for protection, to keep him walking on top of the water. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. His soul was no longer anchored to that word. It was anchored to what he saw what he was experiencing, and he was no longer anchored to, you can walk on this water, come. So then he got full of fear, and he began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In other words, why did you quit trusting what I said? Circumstances will always try to push you away from trying or to from keeping your sure stand on what he has said. Some people, if they don't see a change in 10 seconds, go, well, I guess God didn't forgive me. Our foundation should be on the immutability of his counsel. The unchangeableness of what he said. And if he said, if I call on him, I'd be saved. You know, when I first gave my life back to the Lord, I knew, I knew I was right with God. But do you know there were times when I didn't feel it and I thought, where are you, God? 
Where are you? I wasn't taught just to believe what he said. Then I heard a man one time preaching about, you know, if a husband and wife get married and they say a vow and six months later they wake up and the husband says, I don't feel like I used to. Maybe we should get married. She would, should reach over and smack him in the head. Now, I'm not endorsing that, but I'm just saying. And say, I thought you believed what we said and what we did, and why are you living by how you feel? We should become that way with the Word of God, where we don't care what we feel. That we're going to act on what He said because there is no greater command and promise than what He said. And that's how Peter started, but then he started looking at everything but the promise and thinking, the storm, the winds, the waves, what am I going to do? How in the world were you walking on water in the first place, Peter? It surely was not because you were perfect. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't walk on the water because he was perfect either. Jesus was perfect. But he didn't do it because of that. He said, I never do anything unless I see my father do it. I never do anything unless I hear him. He said, whatever he shows me, he said, that I do. So he knew God dealt with him. You go walk on the water, you go to the other side. Because he probably was there and said, now, how do I get to the other side, father? And he said, you walk on the water. Because he did what he was told. He said there were different times when people said, stay in the city and preach to us. Stay in the city and preach to us. And he said, no, I have to be about my father's business. I must go to the next city. He was just following what God said and what God dealt with him about. That being said, he walked on the water not because he was perfect, but because he obeyed the commands of God. Peter got to start walking on the water because he began to obey the command of God. Here's what we need to do. And, and I believe we're going to close with this, but hear this. There are testimonies always being given in this world. What's a testimony? A statement about something. Statements about things, and they can come from all over the place. They can come from friends. Friends you trust and don't trust. They can come from the TV. They can come from the radio. They can come from the devil. They can come from God. Here's another place they can come by how you feel. I learned back then I can't go by how I feel. I have to go by what God said. God said I'm saved. So I trust it. And you know I found out it was true. But there, you'll have to remember this, there are testimonies in life and usually what people believe they testify of. What you need to do is quit believing the testimony of your feelings. Stay with the testimony of what God said. Well, you know, I'm just not strong anymore. I just keep getting weaker. God said in Joel 10, 3.10, said, let the weak say, I am strong. So what should be your testimony? What you feel or what God said?
Now, don't get me wrong. You need to rest your body and things like that. Jesus rested his body. But I'm saying there are things out there that we need to recognize if we keep talking the testimony of everything else but God's word, it's because that's probably what we're believing. It's because of what we fixed our gaze on. That's what happened with Peter. His word is sure. His word is steadfast. He couldn't swear by anybody else. That's why this book is massively huge. It should be dear to you beyond measure. Not as some religious object, but I mean as because of the words that are in it, it should be dear to you. God entrusted this to man so man could clearly know what God would want, what he has done, what he will do, on and on and on, so you could recognize him. This is what he entrusted to us. He said, the time would come when people would not endure sound doctrine anymore. Toward the end of time. They would heap together people because they have itching ears. They just want to hear what they want to hear. But I'll tell you what, a good parent will make you eat spinach and broccoli. And they may give you a Twinkie and a Ding Dong occasionally. But a good parent is not going to always just give you ice cream because that's what you cry for. But he said, people at the end of time will do that. This is what we're stewarded in life. This right here. Every believer is stewarded this. His words. And then we read his words and know how to steward our life. Every believer... That should be the most precious book. And that is what we represent to the world and give to the world. By it, you can be saved. By it, you can have answers to prayer. By it, you can know how God would act and think toward you when everybody else has their own opinions of him. And what if somebody who's up here preaching got a microphone and says, God hates your guts. He's just had enough of you. I knew that. Tell me something I didn't know. And people agree with it. But they haven't heard his counsel. They haven't found out that he does love us. That he did lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That he was punished so we didn't have to be. That doesn't mean live how you want. But that gives us power. The same book gives us power and his spirit through the book gives us power of how to live. 